0: Hi, this is Wayne Stiles, and I need your opinion. Next year, I'm planning to teach a Bible conference on the topic of waiting on God from the life of Joseph in Genesis. The dates are June 12 through 15, 2025, and the conference is going to be at the beautiful Glen Airy Conference Center in Colorado Springs. There'll be plenty of time to enjoy the Colorado setting and to get to know each other with some laughs as well. Fernando Ortega will be joining us to lead in worship each day and to give a concert one evening. So because the venue is limited in space, I am gauging the level of interest with a one-question survey you can answer at waynestyles.com survey. It would take you like 10 seconds at waynestyles.com survey. So would you do that now? I would love to see you in Colorado next year. Seeing the lands of the Bible with your own eyes will change the way you read the Bible, and thus it'll change your life. See what I mean by visiting WayneStyles.com slash tours. Hello and welcome to Live the Bible. My name is Wayne Styles, and this is the podcast that helps you connect the Bible to your life. Temptation can be tough, and I mean tough. To say no, at times, is probably the only thing harder, is that after you've successfully resisted and you have said no, and then somebody falsely accuses you of giving in. Well, in this episode, we're going to see Joseph encounter Potiphar's wife in Genesis chapter 39. It's a story that offers some powerful tools for resisting temptation and the encouragement we need to face injustice. Well, I'll be back in a bit, but for now, let's fasten our seatbelts and get right into the podcast. Years ago, I traveled with some missionaries to Moscow. I actually went several times. The church that I was involved with at the time, we were uh, helping a local church there, but we were also went this particular time to train pastors, train some national pastors. It was great. I would, I just loved doing that. Well, on our first morning, I headed to the hotel lobby to meet our team as we were about to start the week and start the day, and I I was the first one out. So I was kind of leaning over the balcony and just kind of waiting there for everybody. And I was just, you know, looking around, scanning the lobby, just looking at all the people, and there was nobody that I knew in the whole lobby. And I I looked over to the right, uh, where the bar was, the bar was like at the far right, and there were, you know, a few groups of people sitting around talking, and there were a, a group of ladies sitting over there talking, except for one lady, a uh, very attractive lady, looking straight at me. I thought she was looking at somebody else, seriously, and she just kept looking at me. So, you know, you look away. I mean, obviously, it's like, that, that's weird. And then you look back to make sure, you know, she's not still looking, and she was. And as I looked at her, I remembered that someone told me that uh, prostitutes sat in the bar trolling for customers. <laughs> and then she leans toward me and, and starts smiling, and a literal chill. Ran up my back as I put two and two together, and I can still feel it. In fact, I can still see her in my mind. The moment that our eyes met, it was like I just sort of froze. And in that moment, three very distinct words came to my mind. And I'll tell you what they are here in just a little bit. But for now, turn to Genesis chapter 30. Nine, Genesis chapter 39. We are in a series on the life of Joseph in Genesis, and Genesis 39 is the infamous incident regarding Potiphar's wife. What a chapter. Genesis 39, of course, is Genesis' uh, story of... Joseph in Egypt, this is really our first scene of Joseph in Egypt. Joseph has been, uh, our series so far, the messages that we've looked at in these last couple of chapters have focused on Joseph as the favored son of 12 sons. He's the favored son of Jacob and was clearly designated so because Jacob gave him this coat we often say, coat of many colors, which was torn off by his jealous brothers, and they sold him into slavery and figured that they got rid of him. Then uh, we saw last time in Genesis 38, where Judah probably had had enough of the guilt of being around all his brothers and just decided to leave, and then that was the incident that we saw with him and Tamar last time. And then we get into Genesis 39. And it begins with the same information that we saw at the end of Genesis 37. So let's look the first few verses here of chapter 39. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, brought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. The Lord was with Joseph. So he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him. And how the Lord had caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant. And he made him overseer over his house, and all that he owned he put in his charge. It came about from the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field." So, this Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, uh, so this is like a leading man. I mean, he's captain of the bodyguard of the king. Somehow, by God's providence, Joseph is sold as a slave to this very significant man, and God blesses Joseph, and, the, and, and uh, Potiphar puts him in charge of his whole house and the field. So, everything that Potiphar owns Joseph is now over, and God blesses that. Joseph, we aren't told how long this is, how long this took, but because it was not just in the house but in the field, suggests seasons, that this was not just a couple of weeks, but uh, months and maybe even years that Joseph was uh, over, had these responsibilities, and learned how to manage and to, um, to do what he was doing. Interesting, remember when Joseph was the favored son of Jacob, Jacob also put Joseph in charge. The brothers hated that, but uh, Joseph was also in charge of the family sheep operation, as it were, or goats, whatever the flock was, uh, goats. And um, Joseph prospered there as well, and his brothers didn't like it. Well, he's prospering here. Everywhere Joseph goes, he is prospering. And Potiphar notices this, but he is not the only one that Potiphar no- that, that uh, is noticed. Also, Potiphar's wife, we're told in verse 6, also notices. Um, so verse 6 says, So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge, and with him there he didn't concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, it came about after these things that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph and she said, Lie with me. Wow. That's anything but subtle. I mean, no small talk, no winks across the room, just straight to business. Lie with me. We read that in English. Moses wrote it in Hebrew, she spoke it in Egyptian. But man, that is direct in any language. She says, lie with me. Now, pretend for a moment that you don't know Joseph's response. Think, think of the situation that he finds himself in. He is uh, completely removed from his family. He's completely removed from any spiritual encouragement or accountability. He is a lonely stranger in a strange land. He is a slave with few pleasures, if any. And this woman promises or basically offers a private um incident here and oh, by the way, remember who Potiphar is the you know the the head of the bodyguard. That means when it came time to pick a wife, he probably didn't choose from the leftover Egyptian spinsters. He probably had miss egypt nineteen hundred b c <laughs> so. Conjecture, but this was probably a temptation from a very beautiful woman. Her proposition was very straightforward, but so was Joseph's response. Verse 8, But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me. "'Except you, because you are his wife. "'How then could I do this great evil and sin against God?' Joseph's immediate response wasn't, "'Oh, shucks, ma'am, I'm flattered.'" (laughs) He didn't say, "'Oh, well, you know, under other circumstances at another time, "'you know, maybe.'" Nope, he just flat out said he refused. And then he tells her why he's refusing. He basically says, if I paraphrase what verse 8 and 9 are saying, that he has a responsibility to his master, and he has a responsibility to God. And he brands, or he calls basically her suggested fling, a great evil and a sin against God. Joseph's words here give us a principle that is uh, helpful. Uh, Not just with regard to this particular type of temptation, but uh, all temptation. And here's the principle. Number one, determine to see all sin through the eyes of God. Determine to see all sin through the eyes of God. And I say all sin because if this isn't something you struggle with, it can apply to whatever you do struggle with. Because we need to see all sin through the eyes of God of God. Remember up when uh, Jesus and the disciples were up at Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus asked the question, who do the people say that I am? And the disciples say, oh, some Moses, some Elijah, some you know great prophet. And he says, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And Jesus says, Peter, you're absolutely right. And then Jesus goes on to say, and let me tell you a little more about the Christ. The Christ is not just the Son of the Living God and the Messiah and everything that you think he is. He is also going to die. Peter takes him aside, begins to rebuke him. And then Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. This is what Satan always tries to do to us is to get us to set our interest on man's interest instead of God's. And by the way, those are often very contradictory, very much a contradiction. We see that Satan did the same thing with Eve, who saw the forbidden fruit in a context without God. She saw that it was pleasing to the eyes. It was good for fruit. It was was good, good, good. Everything looked great about it. What's so wrong about it? Satan had spun it so that God's word was removed from the scene, and now all she had was her common sense. Joseph had not abandoned God. Instead, he refused to comply. He was looking at sin through the eyes of God, not through the eyes of people or through the eyes of desire that somehow seems to justify the situation. Not only had he not abandoned God, but Joseph had also not abandoned his masculinity or even his sexuality. He simply understood that God had a context for it, and this wasn't it. Think about fire. Think about your fireplace in the wintertime. A fire in the fireplace is a great thing. I mean, it warms the house. It's a beautiful you know, creates a great ambiance. You can even smell it. You can even hear it when it crackles and snaps. I mean, it's just, everything's great about it. Until a spark pops out on the carpet. Then all of a sudden, it's all hands on deck to smother that spark. Why? Because if you don't, it potentially could burn down your whole house. A fire in the fireplace is where the fire goes. In the fireplace, it, there is blessing, there is everything good about it. Outside the fireplace, it destroys. There's destruction. Sex is the same way. God says, "Where in the context where He designs it, it is a blessing. Outside of that, it brings pain." God, but God, remember, is not a prude. He invented this act, by the way. And remember the the very, the very first command that God gave in the Bible required it, be fruitful and multiply. So God's no prude, he just wants the blessing in the context of blessing. Joseph somehow got the wisdom to resist. How did he do that? He didn't have a Bible, he didn't even have the book of Genesis. Joseph was the book of Genesis. He got it because there was an oral tradition prior to Joseph that led all the way back to Genesis 1. And Joseph would have understood God's design and God's intention. By the way, uh, there's not a man in this room that doesn't struggle with this. I mean, we're not going to stand up and talk about it. And I know that even ladies uh, deal with it at some level. But uh, this is reality. The hard thing about this subject is that uh, we don't ever talk about it. I mean, it's, you know, we hear about it all the time outside of church. It is everywhere in the media. It is everywhere with things that you are trying to buy. And uh, because it works. It is a part of who we are. It's part of who God designed us to be. There's nothing unspiritual about it. But there's also the reality that many of us have failed in this area. And Satan would want nothing more to go, you know what? You're not Joseph. You didn't respond like Joseph did. You're done. The reality is it's not true. Remember Judah, the prior chapter. Remember what we saw last week with Judah. Judah blew it. God wasn't done with Judah. God was just getting started with Judah. That was part of Judah becoming who God wanted Judah to be. So, What this text is applying is, from today on, it's driving a stake in the the ground and saying, from today on, this is who I choose to be, because of the glory of God. The past is the past, and that's where it needs to be left. Jesus died for the past. We're going to leave it there. The temptation to compromise one's purity is not just a one-time event, it is a daily decision. Look at verse 10. This wasn't just a one-time thing for Joseph. Verse 10, "'As she spoke to Joseph day after day, "'he did not listen to her to lie beside her "'or to be with her. "'Now it happened one day "'that he went into the house to do his work, "'and none of the men of the household was there inside. "'She caught him by his garment, saying, "'Lie with me.' "'And he left his garment in her hand "'and fled and went outside.'" Now, most of us, if directly propositioned like Joseph was, uh, would respond as Joseph did. It's like, you got to be kidding, and would leave. But the challenge, the tougher temptation comes in the second temptation in verse 10, that is the day after day. The drip, 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 drip of constant temptation can erode. It can create a, uh, a Grand Canyon, you might say, the erosion eventually, can cause that if we let it. It requires constant vigilance. It requires constant renewal of the mind, especially in a culture like ours that is so steeped in it. Because Joseph had refused to even be with her, she had to get the jump on him. Literally, she had to get the jump on him and surprise him. And Joseph basically illustrates a principle that the rest of the Bible supports, and that is flee. Here's the second Second principle that we can glean from Joseph's chapter here, we need a healthy distrust of ourselves with regard to temptation. We need a healthy distrust of ourselves regarding temptation. Meaning, we don't think, you know what, I can can take that, I can handle that. I can put myself in a compromising place, whether it's this sin or any sin. But especially this one, and uh, and I can work, and I can make it work. No, the reality is you can't make it work. This is why the Lord tells us to flee, to not stand toe to toe with it. So let me finish my Russian prostitute story. I'm in the lobby <laughs> waiting for my friends, and this lady leans toward me. Adrenaline shoots through my body, and I hear those three words. And the three words were, my son, run. I, it's almost, it was almost audible in my head. My son, run. And it wasn't like an audible voice of God. It was scripture. My son immediately took me. I mean, it, all this happened within the, the microprocessing of an Apple Macintosh computer, my son took me to Proverbs 6 and all of the warnings there where it says my son and the warnings of, uh, of the immoral woman or person. And then run, jerked my mind to the New Testament where the Apostle Paul says on more than one occasion, flee. So I backed up like a rodeo horse <laughs> and I managed to find my way back into the elevator that i just come out of and the door was open i backed into it and it closed right in front of my eyes and i was just I, my heart was racing i mean racing have you ever been to like another country like london where the traffic goes the wrong way <laughs> and you're looking this way and you step out in the road and a car goes right by you and like you know takes the edge of your shoe off That's how I felt in this moment. It was like, ah! It was just absolute, complete adrenaline. It scared me to death. Have a healthy distrust of yourself with with regard to temptation. This is why we've got to be in the Word on a regular, on a daily basis, because it gives the Spirit of God something to put in your mind in those moments when you need something put in your mind. If I had not been in the Word on a regular enough basis, the Spirit of God would not have had anything to stick in my mind. My son run would have meant very little to me. But it meant a lot in that moment. And thankfully, by God's grace, and I mean that by His grace, in that moment, I backed up. Don't try to analyze how safe you are. God has already done that, and He tells us to run. Hey everyone, Wayne here. You've read about the life of Jesus. You've probably even seen movies. But there is nothing like seeing the lands of the Bible yourself. Every person I've ever had on one of my tours said it has significantly impacted the way they read the Bible. And if you've ever been to Israel, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Well, registrations are open for my tours upcoming to Israel, Egypt, Turkey, Greece, Jordan, and Rome. That's right, whatever part of the lands of the Bible that you'd like to see, well, we're probably going there over the course of the next year. I would love to have you join me. You can see all the details and the itineraries and even videos at waynestyles.com slash tours. I hope you'll join me for a life-changing journey. Just see waynestyles.com slash tours. And now, back to the podcast. Don't try to analyze how safe you are. God has already done that, and He tells us to run. And not only to run from, but to run to. Paul told Timothy, he said, Flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness. Notice the and. Flee and pursue. It's one action. It's not two actions. It's one action. That is, if you are pursuing, if you are fleeing this, that means you're running in the right direction. If you're running in the right direction, that means you're fleeing this. It's the same thing. We must be in the Word on a regular basis so that when temptation squeezes, and it will, Scripture spills out. When you're squeezed, let Scripture spill out. Potiphar's wife grabs Joseph, he, didn't, he doesn't pray about it, what to do, he doesn't share the four spiritual laws with her, he doesn't pull out a Dr. Saint tract, he doesn't even repeat the words that he had earlier, he simply twists out of his clothes and runs. Well, <laughs> as the old adage goes, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Look at verse 13. When she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought in a Hebrew. Now, pause just a second. Who's he? Potiphar. So, see, her real problem is not with Joseph. It's with somebody else. Okay. He has brought in a Hebrew to us. See, we're in this together. To us. To make sport of us. He came into me to lie with me, and I screamed. When he heard that I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. So she left his garment beside her until his master came home. Then she spoke to him with these words, The Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came into me to make sport of me, and as I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled outside." Hmm. Genesis never tells us what God was doing in the heart of Joseph here. If, As far as we know, Joseph was just pure as a driven snow. He was never struggling with any of these incidents that we see. I mean, we see a little bit of it. We'll see a little bit of it in the next chapter. But the reality is, Genesis' purpose isn't to tell us what God was doing in Joseph's heart. But keep your finger here in Genesis and turn to Psalm 105. Look at Psalm 105. We'll look at this these verses in Psalm 105 starting in verse 17, a little more next week, where they're a little more relevant. But I wanted to show you this because we get to see a little bit past J- Joseph's superhumanness in these verses. Psalm 105, verse 17. He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They afflicted his feet with fetters. He himself was laid in irons. Until the time that his word came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. The word of the Lord tested him. If you've got a marginal reading there, and I hope you do, the word tested means refined. God was refining Joseph in this process. You know what that means? He's purifying him. He was putting Joseph in circumstances to refine him, to test him, to make his character what it needed to be. Back to Genesis 38. I think sometimes when we look at other people's lives, we tend to imagine that if we only had what they had, I mean, life would be great. It would be great. You know, if only my father would dot, dot, dot. If only my spouse would finally dot, dot, dot. If God would simply dot, 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 then all would be well. But the reality is, we're not the victims we think we are. We are sinners chosen by the grace of God, and he is refining us and molding us. Even if God put us in another place, you know what? It would still just be us in that other place. Wherever you go, there you are. <laughs> it's this, the phrase is, and it is so accurate. Now with some exceptions, like abuse, obviously, I mean we, but exceptions don't prove the rule. With some exceptions, most of our ter- tough circumstances reveal the holes in our hearts not the holes in our lives. We think if I only had this to fill the hole in my life, all would be well. The reality is, God often puts us in these areas to refine us, to give us a hole, as it were, to refine us, to make us more like Christ, to give us areas where we need to grow in trust in the sovereignty of God. If we fantasize about life somewhere else, in any other circumstance, I mean, think about whatever it is that you wish that your life was that it isn't. And the reality is that when we fantasize about somewhere over the rainbow, we discover that that yellow brick road only leads to another dead end in the labyrinth of life. This week, Kathy and I were talking through, um, she's... In doing the BSF study in Matthew, and we were looking at Matthew Henry, Matthew Henry commentary, and uh, we remember that we had two sets in the Matthew Henry commentary. There was the one that my grandmother gave us, which is the one that Kathy uses, and then there's another one that I've got like up on the shelf that I don't ever touch. That was Jade White Pentecost's set of Matthew Henry. I got got it as a gift because uh, Dr. Pentecost's daughter used to go to our church, so if, if Dr. Pentecost didn't want something, he'd give it to her. If she didn't want it, she'd give it to me. And so I got Dr. Pentecost's five-volume set of Matthew Henry commentaries. And the best part about those Matthew Henry commentaries is not what Matthew Henry says. It's what Pentecost wrote in there, you know, as he was working through it. And sometimes he would leave sermon notes in there. And I, I brought this one. You can come up and touch it later if you'd like. But literally, it was just this week, I, uh, we were sitting on the couch talking through that, and was flipping through, seeing if there were any sermon notes in there, and this was in a stack of them, but it, uh, it was a sermon that I guess was called Learning Contentment, because that's what's written right at the top, and it's from Philippians 4, uh, verse 11. That's that verse where Paul says, I've learned to be content in all things. But if you as, as I look at his points as he goes down... He basically says, the secret, or or Paul says, I've learned the secret of contentment, and then Dr. Pentecost has this. The secret is this, saying, this is God's place for me. This is God's place for me. Realizing that wherever you are, this is God's place for me. And then he's got several points. Number one, God is sovereign. Number two, God could have put me elsewhere, but this is his place And then he lists several examples, Paul, Daniel, Joseph. He also says God is is going through that experience with you. He will give you help. God will bring you out. And then finally, yield, because we will be better after the fact. And there's, of course, all kinds of verses that go along with this. But I love that phrase, this is God's place for me. Isn't that a great perspective? And at the same time, a challenging perspective. Whew, sometimes I will actually there will there will actually be the thought, and occasionally the words come out of my ungodly, ungrateful heart. Lord, you must not think very much of me, because this is the way my life is. You ever think that? Well, we know that you feel that way. <laughs> Barbara's speaking the truth. We all feel that way sometimes. But the reality is, this is God's place for me. And it's not bad. It's not bad. It is his good way of refining, just like he did with Joseph. You think Joseph was enjoying what he was having to go through? No, it was a struggle for Joseph, just as it's a struggle with us Listen to a few few words from Hebrews chapter 5. This is around verse 8. It speaks of Jesus, and it says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Now, don't get sidetracked with the theology embedded in that verse. How could Jesus learn anything? But we're told that even though he was the Son of God, He learned obedience through the things which he suffered. If Jesus had to do that, how much more don't we have to do that? Jesus experienced betrayal, heartache, temptation, loneliness. He is described as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. If Jesus experienced that, certainly we will. Now, nobody witnessed this scene of Potiphar and Joseph, Potiphar's wife and Joseph, uh, she saw to it that nobody witnessed it. So who is Potiphar going to believe? His wife or his servant? Let me ask that a different way. Who is he going to believe? The one he has to live with? (laughs) Or what is right? The one who is easily disposed of. Sadly, the same thing happens today as it did then. The one with the power wins, regardless of what's right. Verse 19, now when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him, saying, this is what your slave did to me, his anger burned. So Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the jail potiphar hears the story he gets mad and he chooses to put joseph in jail now this is pure conjecture the text doesn't tell us this this is just me thinking out loud but i'm not convinced potiphar believed his wife first of all i mean if any slave had attempted to rape my wife i'd take his head off you don't think potiphar would have done the same thing But Potiphar knew Joseph's character. God was with Joseph. Potiphar knew this. Potiphar recognized this. Potiphar saw in Joseph the complete opposite of what his wife was accusing. Plus, I mean, you don't want to lose a great slave. So let's put him in charge of the jail. Potiphar also would know very much the character of his accuser because she had just accused Potiphar as well. Now, total conjecture, but I think Potiphar put Joseph in jail not only to save face, but to save Joseph's life, and also to put him in a place where he could manage the jail well. All conjecture, but totally possible. Something else that's conjecture, I don't want to build a doctrine off of it, but we know that Joseph was a godly man, and he no doubt had prayed god help me i got to go work for this lady again today and every single day she is she is giving me this this context that it is a challenge every single day day by day we're told joseph would have prayed to god and yet finally deliverance did come in a very unusual way joseph went to jail and yet, what was true, he was also delivered from her. The bars that kept Joseph in also kept her out. Not only that, think about the the, um, the comparison between Joseph's brothers and Potiphar's wife. Joseph's brothers produced to their father Joseph's garment as evidence, and it was a lie. And what happened, Joseph was wrongfully treated. Potiphar's wife produced to Potiphar Joseph's garment, and it was a lie. What was the result? Joseph was improperly treated. And in both cases, even though Joseph took a step back in God's plan for Joseph, it was three steps forward. Think about our own lives as well. This isn't just true of Joseph. This is true of us, and this is the final principle. Number three, What seems like unjust setbacks are part of God's plan for our progress. What seems like unjust setbacks are part of God's plan for our progress. That takes hindsight to see it, but it takes faith to believe it now. Have you ever been falsely accused? Have you ever been publicly censured for something you didn't do? I think we have all experienced this on some level. Maybe it was in the, the home, maybe it's in your among your family, your extended family, maybe it was as a child, brother or sister, falsely accused, maybe it was in uh, the workplace, maybe it's in the church. It happens here too. But injustice that's never been made right publicly, and probably won't. You may have discovered, as I have, God often uses those painful two steps back to propel us three steps forward. If you think about your life, that's probably happened, because that's how God operates often. And it's in those two steps back God is refining our character so that the three steps forward, our character is better in in a place that God wants us to be in a different place that God wants us to be. God used that unfair situation to advance the plan he had for Joseph. Joseph didn't understand that, and we don't either. So we've get we got this great affirmation now in verse 21 that is also an affirmation for us. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail, so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise himself with anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. So, hopefully this sounds familiar because this is exactly what happened with the brothers. We see these repeated cues. Look at verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph, compare that to verse 2. Same chapter, the Lord was with Joseph. These are basically side by side in the grand picture to give us the the perspective. Prior to verse 2, we have this uh, summary, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, you know, parentheses after his brothers had unjustly sold him, and he is put in this place where he prospers. Verse 2, the Lord is with Joseph. Then verse 21, now the Lord is also with Joseph in the prison. So we're seeing this pattern in Joseph's life that we are meant to see, that two steps back is in God's plan, really, three steps forward. If you think about it in your own life and you pray, God, help me and your situation actually gets worse. For Joseph, he prayed, God, help me, and he goes to prison. But the reality is God is working in a way so wise, so wonderful, that we can't see it in the moment, but we know that he is. There are seasons of life, like Joseph, where we feel forgotten, we feel imprisoned, we feel idle, unused, forsaken but we're told God was with Joseph and we know that God is with us as well this is God's place for me will you say that with me this is God's place for me thank you Dr. Pentecost thank you Joseph thank you Lord let's pray Once again, our Father, we're amazed at the strength and wisdom that you've given this young man. Youth is wasted on the young, we'll sometimes say, but the reality is there are many, many godly young people that your Holy Spirit has given wisdom to, sometimes on a level that surpasses many of us. Joseph is amazing. The insight that you gave him, not only for wisdom, but also the strength that we see in Joseph in this chapter is amazing. And we are inspired by his example. But we're also very encouraged because we see the injustice that he dealt with in so many levels. We see the injustice that he struggled with, and we can identify with him. We're also grateful, Lord, for these bits of wisdom, these windows into reality that you were with him, that all of these things weren't happening because you were somehow against him, but they were happening because you were with him. Thank you for the encouragement that that offers us. As we look at our lives and often wonder, God, why have you allowed this great pain in my life? And we can look at Genesis, and we can look throughout the Psalms, and we can look at the life of Christ and the apostles. You have not left us or abandoned us. You are with us. Jesus' promise to be with us until the end of the age is still good. Your spirit within us has not left us. You have not abandoned us. But this is part of the refining. This is God's place for us. Thank you for that perspective. And Lord, may it be more than a mere idea. May it be more than a tough pill that we choke down. May it be a peace. Give us a resolve to trust you and your sovereign plan in our lives and to have a great peace when all around us is great turmoil. Once again, we're grateful for Joseph, especially for the Spirit of God in our lives as we've been encouraged through his life. And help us this week now as we live it out. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Live the Bible. Resisting the strongest temptations is possible if we determine to look at all sin through the eyes of God. And remember that we are not immune to any temptation. We've got to trust that those unjust setbacks in our life are actually part of God's grand plan for our progress. Even when it seems otherwise, we can trust that God will never abandon you nor the good work that he's doing in you. By the way, I've written a book on the life of Joseph. It's called Waiting on God, What to Do When God Does Nothing. The book has encouraged the lives of thousands of people, and I'd love for it to encourage you as well. Just go to waynestyles.com slash waiting to get your autographed copy. That's waynestyles.com slash waiting. Next week, we're going to be back in Genesis discovering what to do when it feels like God is leading you in circles. You ever been there? Well, I have, and it's not fun. We'll find the solution that works next time. Until then... Live the Bible. Well, it would really help us if you take a moment right now and just let me know if you're interested in coming to the Bible conference on the topic of waiting on God from the life of Joseph in Genesis. I'll be teaching it next year at Glenary in Colorado Springs, and I would love to see you there. If you enjoy the podcast, I think you will really enjoy the conference with me, Fernando Ortega, and my team. Please answer one question at waynestyles.com slash survey. That's com slash survey. I would love to see you in Colorado next year.